Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Hello, and thanks for listening to another episode of All Better on FM. I'm your host, Joe Van Wee. Today's guest is my friend Joe Kane. Joe Kane is the clinical director of Mountain's Edge Partial Hospitalization Program near Elk Mountain, Pennsylvania. Joe holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology from Penn State University. He also has a Master of Social Work uh, from Marywood University. Joe started in this field in 2006 as a behavioral worker at the Scranton Counseling Center moving on to be the clinical administrator for over a decade at Clearbrook Treatment Centers. Then he was the clinical director of Avenues Recovery Center in Philadelphia. Joe's interview breaks into two parts today. Part one, we're going to talk about addiction. And the second part will be next week. We're going to talk about recovery. So let's meet Joe Kane. We're here with Joe Kane. Joe Kane is the clinical director of Mountain Edge currently, and he was who I wanted for my first guest. And eleven months later, we got him. <laughs> took it. Took enough time. Thanks for coming, Joe. Hey, thanks for having me, Joe. Um, for a little background, how would you how would you summarize? <sighs> who you are before you became uh, a master clinician? It's a broad question. Yeah. Well, um, give me a broad answer, a specific answer. So background, um, grew up in West Granton, the youngest of six boys. My, uh, there's a 17 year difference between me and my oldest brother. So I was kind of the, I don't, I don't think I was really planned. Yeah. Um, but it was a, it was a good thing. I'd say it's a good thing. Um, but my, uh, my father is a, was a retired state trooper, is a retired state trooper. Um, my mother was, uh, was actually a postulate in the convent. Wow. Yeah. What's a, what would you say a postulate? before they, they kind of, I think they're in their like tutelage. Yeah. Learning the nun, the nunnery, the nun business, the nun factory. Yes. And, uh, my father was in the military at the time. So my dad always jokes that he didn't get a dear John letter. He got a dear God letter. Um, and she, she eventually left, um, wasn't for her. 
and married my father and had six kids, which I think is kind of ironic. You know, uh, first you want to marry Christ and then you marry a state trooper, a state trooper. Um, and, uh, I don't know, like growing up, I was real close with my, probably my mother, my two next brothers, um, Bill and Mike were really close with each other growing up. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I don't, I don't want to say the odd man out, but I was like, kind of did my own thing, so to speak. What was the age difference between your next closest? We're three, we're both three years apart. So my brother, Mike is three years older than me. And my brother, Billy is three years older than Mike. And, um, they, they spent a lot of time together. So I was, I kind of hung out with, I hung out with the neighborhood, neighborhood kids majority. I mean, that was when kids played outside. So you have six siblings, right? Five or five, five. And that's a lot. And there's a big age difference. Would you think your first connection was with the neighborhood that gave you like a brotherly feel with friends? Because I have a, I have a separation of years with my brothers and sisters, but the first time I felt real connection, I think was with friends of what I assumingly would have wanted what siblings because of the age difference. I I would say that that's pretty accurate. I mean, I was, I I spent a lot of time with the neighborhood kids because I grew up, I grew up by St. Anne's Yeah, and St. Anne's has changed quite dramatically over the years in terms of just the layout um, and it's the holiness. It, it, it became a basilica <laughs> while you lived there probably, right? Yes. That wasn't always a, a holy site. No. Yeah. Um, and so the, uh, there was always people playing. You grew up in the proximity of a sacred place. Sure. That's what, that's why I always struggled. I thought, you know, when I got sober, I thought, you know, this close proximity God's just going to beam lights across yeah. the street and I'll be better. He has an office there yeah, and he, he sees you're tarnishing it with your addictive soul. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so I was like, you know, this close proximity, I'm just going to get the Jesus beams yeah. Yeah. and, uh, and the obsession and compulsion is going to be removed. And I probably don't have to do all this other, this other stuff that they talk about. No, the land will just seep into me. The, yeah, there the, was already one miracle. Right. There was already one miracle that happened here. Why can't they? What was the miracle? Was it, was there blood on a statue, a bleeding statue? No. From what, from what I was told by my, my mother told me this is that in, I I don't know what year, but the, uh, they had to evacuate the church because it was going to sink into a mine. Wow. And they all, left all the holy people left and they uh they made a a novena or uh i don't know whatever you call it to uh to saint anne and all of a sudden this giant massive boulder moved and blocked the fault are you that's what is that what makes it a basilica was it for from what i i know and, you know, don't quote me on this, but there has to be some type of miracle that happened on the grounds for it to be considered a basilica. Like a contractor, maybe knowing what they're doing. And <laughs> I don't, I, <laughs> I don't know if that modern miracle. <laughs> I don't know if that qualifies, but um, I guess in this case, God would be the contractor. Yeah. And he, he dropped this massive boulder. Wow. 
I, I didn't know that story. That story. I, thought I. It, I thought it was something, something sensational, like a statue. I hope I'm right because I'll sound. Well, I'll look very it up. Learned. I'll look it up because you know there, there'll be records. If you have a basilica or a, a miracle, you know the Vatican dispatches their miracle intel team, and they got to collect the data. Yeah, and I don't. You know, being Catholic, it's got to be a strict criteria of miracle. Yes. In, in, uh, At one point, I knew some of the other, I think the other criteria, I think you have to have some type of uh, relic, an important relic. And yeah. I know, I know, I know you had to have an elevator. An elevator? Well, if it's a dual, if it's split level, you have to have an elevator. They had to build an elevator for uh-huh. it to become a basilica. Yeah, there's all this like different codes too that you need to. I got to look this up after because that's a unique experience. We grew up in Scranton to grow up across from St. Anne's. That's, that's a really distinct neighborhood. Yes. It's West side, but it's a different world of West side. That whole little block area. It's a lot of, it's a lot of families that have been there forever. Yeah. And then you had a good basketball league. I was in the St. Anne's league. Uh, Oh yeah. My brother was our coach. Did you play basketball? I played basketball. Um, I was, my, my brother was, was pretty good at, at basketball and we were, there was like a point in time where we'd be on opposing teams. And I remember his team won the championship and beat us at St. Anne's. Yeah. And my brother was always, you know, I think that's part of like my story is like, you grow up with five brothers and a, a military state trooper, you know, like you, (laughs) (laughs) and my brother, my brother, Mike would always he would say, because I remember he beat us, and he'd be like, second place is the first loser. Yeah. And uh, and I remember losing that game and crying, like real tears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like. No doubt. And, uh, it, it, but like, in terms of our family dynamics, like, it was the traditional Irish Catholic home where everybody ate dinner together and. And my father, my father retired when I was pretty young. I think I was probably 10 or 12 when he retired from the state police. Wow. So then he, was he present at home a lot then? Now? He was pretty, he was pretty present. Um, he did some, he did some odds and ends jobs. He worked at the U for a little while with like security and he did some security odds and ends and, yeah. and um, he just never really, I think when you're a state trooper for that long, um, the private sector. I don't think he, it really jived with him. But the probably did not have the order or the authority to. No. Yeah. And, uh, and I think he, he just, uh, he got really disenfranchised quick and he's like, I don't need to do this. So you have six, there's six boys in that house. You're 10 years old. There's no way you have an active addiction started. No. I, no. But, but you have a present military dad. A mother who would be a nun. You live next to a holy site, and you're about to become a drug addict. Yeah, yeah. Well, I went to Catholic school too. I went to. I grew up right up the street from St. Anne's, so I went to St. Anne's. Yeah. And you know, when you're the last of of six boys, you know the name becomes familiar with with the, the school. Yeah. And um, and I was not the the easiest child to deal with. I was pretty, um, I don't know. I was pretty impulsive. I was pretty outspoken. I was pretty, um, rebellious. 
to say the word. Yeah. Um, but like I, I was constantly pushing the envelope and I was constantly like rebellious. And, um, I remember as far back as like first grade, they used to let me walk home for lunch. So I would literally leave the school, walk up the street. My mom would make me lunch and then they would let me walk back for the rest of the day because I was, I was not fit to be in the cafeteria. Yeah. So it wasn't, yeah, it was a relief for them. Not, (laughs) not not, me. Not, I didn't mind. I mean, privilege. I got to eat, I got to eat whatever I wanted really, which was nice. But I remember, I don't know how long that lasted. Um, but I, that was like, it was, it was a real Catholic school is really hard for me. Yeah. I think it's hard for most thinking people. It it was, it was extremely (laughs) difficult for me because there's so many, there's, you know, you get this, this, oh, and I, I was, I had the nuns who lived behind me and, um, and I had the priest that lived right next door to me. So I, I was, I still had teachers for nuns and you're surrounded by a death culture. You have the Basilica, which all decorations are mutilations and sacri- human sacrifice. And then you live next to a funeral home too. Yeah. It's right there. I used so to play in there. There's lines. People are hanging out to go look at a dead body. I, I used to actually, sometimes I would, I wouldn't even know who was being laid out at the funeral home. And I would just go in and sign the book. Yeah. What's up? What's and, going on? <laughs> and I would go through the line. Who's here this week? And I'd be like, I'm sorry for your loss. And I would have no clue who these people were, but it was like, let's go in. Let's see what's this. Let's see what's up. Well, I got to ask, did you, did you see Harold and Maude before you were 10? No. I don't think I've ever seen that movie, period. Well, they go to funerals and they fall in love because they're, they're, you know, they're two oddballs. One's 85 years old and the young man. They meet because they sneak into funerals and pretend they're with the bereaved. They're like morbid souls and they fall in love. It's like a 16 year old boy and an 85 year old woman because they attend funerals together. Well, that's, you know, love knows no limits. Yeah. So I could see it happening. And in grief, that's when you, you're most vulnerable to love. It makes sense. It makes sense. Did yeah. you fall in love? In I, I don't know if I necessarily fell in love. I think I like signing the book. Yeah. You know, like, hey, I'm going to sign my, maybe, yeah. maybe I'll get a, maybe I'll get a card in the mail. Documentation. Yeah. <laughs> you know? that, that, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming. We have no idea who you are. You were in like shorts and a t-shirt in your your Nikes. Did you sign your name? Oh yeah. So it's not a pathology. You weren't going no. in there saying I'm like, I'm no, I thought I was like, I thought, you know, this is the thing you do. You, you, you know, you go tell people you're sorry and you walk through the line, you shake the hands and you say your prayer. And I don't know, probably some people there were like, Oh, these kids are so nice and they don't even know. But I was kind of just intrigued by the whole process. I think it's the the beginning stages that's just defining the Joe I know of the empath. <laughs> it's the empath. If someone's bereaved, I better get in there and, you know, do my duty. And Well, you know, what's funny is that my, my parents, within like the last couple of years, they, they said, we want to be, I don't want to get morbid, but they said, you know, we don't want to, we don't want a viewing, we want to be cremated. Yeah. 
And I was like, this is not how I envisioned it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. I'm the host of All Better. But I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. At Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the fellowship of recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and assure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility making sure each individual is financially solid and self and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. Your death is ruining my plans. This is not how I envisioned envisioned this rolling out. I I didn't think this was going to be the case, you know? Yeah, well, my first idea of how to celebrate, um, A cremation is Scrooged. If you remember, Bill Murray um, is being like automatically rolled into the flames and he's fighting to get out of it. But his brother's there. But it looks like you can have a ceremony of like a pyre. But it was really like 80s, like uh, crematory, real high tech. Maybe you could do something like that. Maybe. It's automated... Possibly, but I was, I was telling, I even said that to my mother and I said, this is not mom. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. And, and she starts laughing like, well, that's what we want to do. And I was like, well, I'm okay with it. It's not like you have to run your decisions by me, you know, like, I I wonder what, (laughs) like, how do you, (laughs) how do you choose? Like I grew up Catholic and my, my, my grandfather was an undertaker and um, I, w- I wouldn't, I want to be cremated. There's something, the pageantry of being filled with embalming fluid laid out to me. It's just too ghoulish in my head now. Like, I don't want to be <laughs> that's how, that's wheeled how. around like Stalin or just showed like, I'm like, like Lenin, just leaving you in a case to look at. It's- it it kind of is. I mean, cause people learn either they learn something like the way that the human mind sometimes works. It's you remember something at the beginning or the end. And a lot of people remember the end stuff. Yeah. So like, do you want that to be the yeah, makeup on? Like yeah. what the, <laughs> some the memory that doesn't fit. So, so yeah, I, I grew up by a funeral home, church, nuns, 
priests. And, um, and I remember just like having a real hard time with the contradictions between what I was learning and what I was seeing. And I remember in like second or third grade, I was like, you know, you're, you're learning about the Beatitudes and you're learning about the commandments and you're learning about, you know, all these things that you should do to be a good person. And, and, um, I remember I, I had like a little, I don't know if it was a coup, but I started to ask questions about what I was hearing and what I was seeing. And I was like, well, why do we have all this ornate things at the church? I said, and all this gold, I said, why don't we just sell that and feed the poor? Yeah. And, uh, and I remember in like second or third grade, they brought a priest in and it was like, it was like a shut, shut this down segment yeah, you're running the show, kid. Yeah, you're, you're 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 creating dissension amongst the ranks, and uh, and I remember sitting there in this classroom and thinking, like, I was I was kind of mortified, like I felt betrayed. I felt shame, like yeah. I felt like I was being shamed, and you know, because you you're you're not a position of authority. You're this young kid, and and uh, you know, you got somebody coming in that's saying you're wrong. This is right, and um, and I remember thinking like, well, okay, I'll, I'll be quiet. Well, you're buzzkill, man, to a priest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This kid ruining. And like, you know, I've had the, I've had the pleasure of, of having some really good relationships with a lot of the people that were, they were my neighbors, Sure, you know, and I, I grew up and uh, I had a lot of these guys that would, uh, that would, try to help me the best way they can. And I had a particular nun who lived behind me, which is, is crazy because uh, her name was sister Joan of Arc and she just took a shining. Yeah. Sister Joan of Arc. And she took like a shining to me and she, she was probably like at the time she had to be in her late sixties and they had the, the basketball and the tennis courts in the back. Yeah. And, And she would like go over with us some of the kids and like play tennis and like when she went, she actually ended up going to Jerusalem and she came back and she gave me a, a rosary made of uh, what's that wood olive, olive wood, olive wood from Jerusalem. So she was like, she kind of like tried to temper me the best that she could carrying. Good yeah. Force. She was, she was, just, and it's crazy because I gave this woman a, a run for her money. Like I was not, and I had her two years because one of the kids in my class, her mother was a teacher, so we couldn't have her. So I ended up having this, this nun. And when I ended up getting sober, I'll never forget. I was like, I was getting into the, the amends part. Yeah. And I, I, I really felt like I owed this woman an amends. I really did. And I tracked her down to, she was in a, um, I guess like a retirement home for, for nuns in, in Massachusetts. And I ended up getting the number for this place and I called and I couldn't get a hold of her, but I left a message and I was sitting downtown. I had to bring a friend of mine um, to probation to check in or do something, meet with this probation officer. And she called me and she was, Oh my God, she had to be like in her nineties. 
And I couldn't believe, number one, I couldn't believe that she was alive. And number two, I couldn't believe that she actually called me back. And I said, I said, it's, it's Joe Kane. Do you remember me? And it was hysterical what came out of her mouth. She said, she said, I remember you. You were the little boy whose mother thought he could do no wrong. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's absolutely. And, um, I remember I, I said to her, I said, I just wanted to, to thank you for everything that you did. And I wanted to, you know, apologize and tell you, I'm, I'm sorry for being the kid that I was, which was awful. And, and she said, she said, you have no idea how much this means to me. Right. And she said, this week has been one of the hardest weeks in my life. She said, the woman, my best friend who I took my vows with in the convent has Alzheimer's or dementia. And she doesn't, this is, this is the first week she doesn't remember who I am. Mm. And I was like, it just was one of those moments where like some people get that kind of stuff and some people don't, but it was like one of those things where you're like, I'm glad I did that. I'm really glad that I, I went through and, and that's not something that I would think to do. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm probably at the time I was like, I don't know, 26 or 27. Yeah. And would you consider yourself in that part of your sobriety? Was there a return to Catholicism or? I think it was just like, I remember I was sitting in my room and, and, uh, and I had, uh, I had this house that I bought that the people were extremely religious and there was a lot of religious stuff in the house. And I think it's bad juju to take that stuff down. So I just kind of left it up. Wow. Yeah. And I remember putting this, this rosary on one of the, the religious articles. And I remember looking at it one day and I'm thinking, I wonder what she's up to. I wonder if she's even alive. I wonder. And then I just recall the the, the rosary she gave you. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, I think I should try to, and that's not my own thinking. I don't think that's came from me. No, that's connection. But how many things do come from a person? I don't, you're just kind of surrounded by variables. You don't choose that make you. And I think that's like, I think when you think about it, like how many times people have, leave footprints in your mind. Yeah. And I think that's something saying like, Hey, you know, reach out or, Hey, maybe you need to do something with that. It's beautiful to see that recovery does something that you never get a chance or consideration or probably be too uncomfortable to do to contact a 90 year old woman dedicated her life to service. Uh, and had a rough week. Cause here's a person you share 90 years of memories over say 60, 70. She doesn't know your name. That's, that's haunting. Um, how many could only imagine and you get to call and that's 20, you're going 20 years back. Here's a, here's a little boy. She, she took under her wing. There's some good nuns out there. I'm, um, I, before we move on, I, I like talking about it because how do you reconcile what you are observing as the hypocrisy of how school structure, the pageantry, or artistry of a church, how it's presented. Catholics, Protestants are never that flamboyant. They, uh, that's where the simplicity of the, the Christ message really came was after Protestants rose up in Frankfurt and all these places, Hamburg, and uh, they didn't want that in a church. And I, I didn't know that. I didn't know what a Protestant was when I was a Catholic. But 
I much prefer gold now. There's, <laughs> and I think uh, Catholics always could justify that with the anchor of Mary washing Christ's feet and was going to put this ornate perfume on his feet. One of the apostles, hey, well, he was sell this, we'll feed the poor. Yeah, yeah. Christ just lays down a line. Hey, you'll always have the poor. Let her, let her wash my feet. <laughs> you hey, you won't always have these feet. And I guess from that interpretation, like, man, let's get the gold out. Let's paint the walls. Let's celebrate. But um, how do you reconcile that at an age? Does that linger with you? Because I, we talk a lot and we're similar. There's an attraction to the spiritual world. There's something. It's just when I was a kid, I was attracted to the whole lore. Um, was that a disappointment that stayed with you? Maybe. I don't know if it was necessarily a disappointment. I think it. it's like. I think it started to create at that age, like the narrative, you know, the narrative you live by and like, you know, which you're, you're always going to see inconsistency in life and, and hypocrisy. And, and I think it was like, you know, you, you at that age, it maybe it kind of led to some cynicism, yeah. but I think it's like when I, when I started to resolve that stuff, I had to really look at the, the positives and the negatives, you know, because there was, and I, I think from that point, like from that, that time, I started to look more at the negative aspect of things than the positives. And then when I finally started to, uh, to get sober, I had to start to really look at some of the stuff that was more positive about those times in life. And that, that, that I, at that point I wasn't willing to look at. Yeah. Um, and I think that helped to change some of the, the narrative, at least the one that I lived by for, for years and years and years. It's a common thread. We grew, you know, we grew up in a Catholic town, um, of that disappointment someone might have when you first understand the world's imperfect religion's kind of imperfect for, for sure. Um, I, I, I felt a disappointment. Why couldn't this all be true? The, the magic, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, I, I think it's like, cause my mom is, is extremely devout. I mean, my mom will go to, my mom pretty much goes to church every single day. Um, and I have these conversations with her about, you know, the idea between the secular and then the non-secular and the idea behind spirituality and yeah. religion. And, um, and she's, she's not one to push anything on anyone, which is not, really necessarily the case for a lot of people. She just kind of does her own thing and live and let live. Yeah, she does. And, um, and I think that's, I think like, if I really think about it, my mom tempered a lot of that too, you know, because like she, she never was pushy about that, that type of stuff. And, you know, she, she kind of let us make our own ideas. And how old is your mom now? Because it's kind of progressive for an older Catholic to be cremated. That's a progressive. Well, my mom and dad are born on, they both have the same birthday, September 30th. And my dad, yeah, my dad will be 81 and my mom will be 79. Or no, 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 no. My dad will be 82 and my mom will be 80. They're, They're 81 and 79 now. Wow. And you get to sit, have conversations with your mom that are existential, spiritual, secular, religious. Yeah. She'll send me stuff like she'll tell me to, to read this God minute or, or she'll send me like a, 
um, some stuff because my mom is is becoming more savvy with electronics. My dad's pretty cool. good with them. Yeah. Um, but you know, he'll send me memes of like, or you know, like, cop jokes. <laughs> my dad. My dad is a is a, is a Facebook. Uh, he loves to get on Facebook and post political stuff, and and I just. I just watch. I'll have to check some of his stuff out. <laughs> He's brutal. <laughs> and he gets in it. He gets into it with all these, these like former state troopers and they're, they're yeah, like man. boomers have lost their minds. They ragging on each other. And then, and then I see my friends commenting on it and I just, I just watch from the sidelines. Boomers came into the face social media pond about 10 years late. And, uh, they're just up He's to, making up for it. Yeah, man. Like, get in, mix it up. It's time. It's go time. It's it, it, it's it's nuts, and <laughs> and he just he just does not. I don't think he really he cares at all about what he does or says anymore. No. He's just like the cape's on, master troll yeah. at work. He's he's uh, he's funny, but my dad's he's. He's intelligent too. So yeah. like he doesn't, he's kind of like me. If he's going to make a point, he's going to research it and sure. he's going to make sure he doesn't look silly. Yeah. And, and he's going to have facts and, and then, you know, people don't respond well to that. All he time. sources his comments. Yeah, he I does. Like he yeah. does. I like Facebook's getting really. Well, he, that's all he has is time. So yeah. it's like. You have access to the world. You can yeah, search out. Just gets on there and. Um, with six siblings, did you consider, was your, your, your path through that neighborhood and that school, was it unlike any of the siblings that went before? Oh yeah. I think, I think they were like, they were known, but I, I was, you wouldn't beyond that. It's funny. Cause I went, I, the the coins who are also a pretty well known yeah. family they they worked at the school and um I I will see them sometimes out and about and they will constantly say worst kid that ever went through that school oh that's a good Sam yeah. yeah it was is a good and and it's funny because uh, um I'm friends with one of the coins and his sister was in my class and and um like kindergarten first grade and she would go home and and uh. Her mom would say, how was your day at school? And she would say, it was great, except Joseph had to stand in the corner again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, corporal punishment there. Yeah, so I guess, you know, I was, uh, I was not, I I moved outside the bounds. At that point, in hindsight, did you reflect, were you curious, why am I different than what's happening? I think I just, I, I don't know. Like a lot of times people say like their, their kids are bored at school or, or I think I just thought differently. I just yeah. had these ideas and thoughts that were outside the scope of the kids that I was necessarily around. Yeah. Um, and you know, like you'll ask people that suffer from alcoholism or addiction. Did you feel you're different? I didn't feel I was different in the, you know, the generic sense, I just felt like I thought differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I operated a little bit differently and I, I, I was a little bit cynical. Well, yeah. I mean, you're the, you're the youngest in this sea of five other males. Of course you would think differently. Your dad's retired. 
You know, you are, there's different variables around you to cause you to think differently. Yeah. And, and, and I was outside the scope. Cause like, you know, you're around all these, these kids whose parents are like in their late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. And my parents are, you know, when I was eight, my mom was 50. Yeah. And my dad was 52. So I was constantly would, I would go to grocery stores or stuff with my mom and, and they'd be like, Oh, is this your grandson? And I'd be like, Hey grandma, I would, I would lean right into it. No, we had a lot of that outside. Lean right into it. And, and, uh, and you know, they never, they never thought differently of it. My parents didn't, I don't think, but, uh, you know, I did a little bit. I was like, you know, this isn't, this isn't what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing, you know, everybody's, it's like that sesame shit. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> one of these canes. Yeah. <laughs> one of these canes is not like the other. So, so like I went to, I went to Catholic school up until seventh grade. And then I went to, I, I left my last year and went to West Intermediate. Was it, that's, that's kind of a culture shock. Did you have friends there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I a lot of the neighborhood kids that I hung out with already went there. So, you know, like I had friends. Easy entry then. But I saw, you know, I, me and my brother were talking about this uh, like a, a couple months ago. It's like, if if you really looked at it surface level, like when we went to St. Anne's, we were not the affluent family. And most of the kids that went there, like they, they're, Families, I wouldn't say affluent, but for upper our, middle class. Yeah, for our area. Yeah, so like then I went to Westside and it was like, okay, you know, I'm seeing things differently now. America. Uh, yeah, and and I'm I'm seeing that people live differently, and and uh, I don't I would I wouldn't say it was necessarily culture shock. It was just more of like socioeconomics. My worldview was so limited. It peels back. Not everyone's having the same experience as me. Um, and it, it's hard because when you grow up Catholic, you, you don't want to think in a lens of socioeconomics, but you're surrounded by it being hidden in front of you from what you said, the chalices, just expecting everyone's the same. But the cruelty of when that veil falls, Oof. that people, life is unfair. They're not getting the same variables. Not everyone has the same start. That bothered me when I was a kid. Well, I mean, if you already have this, if you already have this, like, uh, this cynicism that's brewing because you're seeing these discrepancies as a child and then you, you know, the, the, as you said, the veil gets dropped, you go into eighth grade and you're seeing things completely different now. It's like, it kind of, it made me a little bit more cynical. It does. The cynicism, that's where it starts for me because it's like, this doesn't make sense in a narrative. I'm oh. taught things in three acts and then something wonderful happens or there's resolution by 12, eighth grade, or even before then there is no resolution. Some stories end cruelly. And I don't know how to reconcile this in the spirituality. I was taught like, this will be only answered when you're dead. You get all the pleasant <laughs> surprises of how this all made sense. Um, I couldn't help. You can't grasp at that straw anymore. I'm no. like, no, the world, there's a cruelty here and I can't stop looking at it. And it's, it's, it's letting, it's diminishing all the other lessons I've had. Cause it's just so, I don't, it's, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. A lot of it doesn't. And I think that's like where you, 
you you kind of have to you kind of try to make the best sense of it that you can. Yeah. You know, and I think that that happens through human connection and, and humor. Yeah. Humor. Irony. And I think that's too, like when you think about it, like that's when you're in those states and you're, you're developing as a, as a child and adolescent, you, you become masterful with your defense mechanisms. Yeah. And then, you know, you're, you're, what are you protecting? You're protecting. What was yours? Was it, was it humor? humor. Yeah. A lot of humor. Um, a lot of, uh, and then, and then it became like somewhat anger, like, yeah. you know, in, in adolescence, it was a lot of anger. Um, and, and probably a lot of avoidance yeah. and, and deflection, you know, look over here so you don't see me. I was like a smoke and mirrors. Anger. Did it ever, uh, you know, manifest in vandalism, some, some Matt, I can't confirm or deny that. Oh, Not, well, sure. I mean, absolutely. I think that's, you know, I remember, I remember breaking stuff. And, yeah. There's a lot of old buildings at West side. I'd smash West side was the license to smash windows. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, you know, like just doing stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like in the adolescent years, just doing things that you, you wouldn't we used to, to steal the golf balls from the driving ranges. And then we'd go up in the woods and hit them with metal bats at the fawn wood. We would go. Yeah. 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 We'd go up at like three in the morning and cool. oh, that's fun. Yeah. That's tribal. Uh, that's been with us forever. That's Who prepping a young man for war. You steal the golf balls, hit them with baseball bats. This is, this is warrior training. I mean, who doesn't, what child wouldn't enjoy that is, you know, you normally hit this golf ball with this, tiny little nub the kids that have bigger problems than addiction that's how i saw it (laughs) i think that they should you know that might not even be a bad idea is to you know open a place where that's what you do is you get a metal bat and as many golf balls as you want to hit just watch them soar because they they, those things go when you hit them with the bat if you don't bottleneck a path for kids to do that stuff males impacts as long as we're the species of a mammal with this same brain nothing's changing that quickly you, you will you will they'll find darker things that path is there for us to have that little war rally that we're yeah, your boys especially if you get them in a pack you know you could say all right that's gender stratification roles i don't know um i don't know the evidence but i'm boys are drawn to that it's it's a natural course they just show up causing mayhem yep yeah, and then you put, you know, in the adolescent years, then you throw alcohol and drugs into the mix. Oof. Yeah. You know, it's, then it gets a little a little dicey. It does. I felt smarter, though. I felt like myself when I was drunk. I felt crazy when I was sober. I, was, I, I felt like the anxiety would come out in a behavior, like I'll really act up. Yeah. But if I was drunk, I kind of felt like a little more of an adult when I was a teenager. Well, that's like the first time I drank was in St. Anne's, too. Really? What was that like? What was the connection that was made the first day you realized what alcohol could do for you? Well, I was with a couple of my friends. We were, this was like the first time I really, I, I got the feeling, but we were drinking hurricane forties, malt liquor behind like by the, there used to be this like old building. I think they just put stuff in. It was like a little warehouse and we were drinking there. And, and uh, I remember I got, violently ill and then a 
I think a priest came to chase us out. And I was like, what are you doing? And, And we took off, you know, we took off running. But I remember, I remember just feeling like, yeah, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Not only did I get the feeling, but I got the chase and it was, and we got away. It was like, yeah. It's action. Yeah. It was, it was like feeling alive. I, when you said that, I was just, I got a total recall of when you would drink, even if it was in the day, the passage of time felt far more significant in my mind when I was a kid, when I was drunk, it felt like a film was happening. Yeah. And, and you had to, but that was the thing. Like you had to cram it into a, a window (laughs) before you had to report back. Yeah. You you had to, you had to, you had to, I think that's where like, sometimes you think about it. Cause like you had to plan everything. Yeah. You had to plan, you had to be meticulous. You couldn't be drunk at the hour you had to get back home. I I remember one time running the train tracks because my dad was like, you're home at this time. And if you're late, it's, yeah, you did not want. And I remember running the train tracks at like 1030 and it was like, this was back in trips park. So I was booking it and I remember I was falling and I had white khaki pants. I had like khaki pants on. And I literally stopped at one point when I got onto like the actual road right before I got, and I flipped them inside out thinking that. Oh, wow. Yeah. That like, so I, I walked into the house with my pants on inside out pockets showing everything. And I thought like, he's not going to (laughs) notice. And I, I think he probably did, but he, Maybe he was too scared to even confront such oh, a no. such a bold move of pant work. No, my <laughs> why father, is my son's pants? My I don't think he was ever afraid to confront. Okay, yeah, all right. No, he was not. He was. How about, how about this? There's no cell phone. You're running no. home. How did you tell time? Did you have a watch? When no, you somebody had a, somebody there had a watch or a cell phone, and I was like, I gotta get home. I think the mind clocks of kids then the ability to mark time in your head. Uh, I wonder if, how you could compare that to kids today. There was no watch. It was like a few kids had a, a Casio's, Meyer Man, some watches, but you had to tell time. You had to yeah, keep track. You had to know. 15 minute increments where you should be and what you're doing. I remember the first time I ate acid, I called my father. And I tried to stay out that night. I wanted to stay at my friend's house. Yeah. And he's like, no, get home. Oh. And I walked into the house and I was, I was, I was in it and I'm trying to like keep it together. Oh my God. And he goes, what is this? And I'm like, oh shit, what? Right. (laughs) And he's like, what is this? And he has an envelope in his hand. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what is Wait, anything, Dad? Yeah, I'm like, what, what is it? Like, I'm, I'm intrigued at this point, but I'm sweating. Why is it moving? It's <laughs> swirling, I'm sweating. And he goes, "It's from the Scranton Public Library. You have overdue books." I swear to God. And I start busting out laughing. I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'll get them back tomorrow, Dad. I'm gonna go over to the other room, and I'm never gonna see you the rest of the night." Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. an intense trip, man. 
and, and like, you know, God bless both of them, both of my parents, because like, were you having visuals? Did you sit that? Were you, I had Oriental rugs on the other side of the house. Oh yeah. You're toast. And I went right over there. Yeah. And I was just looking at these rugs and they're, they're doing things that, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. You're in the puzzle factory. Yep. I was in the, and this, I was like, I don't know. I've had to be like 15 or 16, you know, and, and your dad's melting your face with an overdue with library yeah. card. Yeah. Sweating. I remember just sweating. Like, what could this possibly be? <laughs> what did I do now? The whole future's on the line here. What did I do? Cause I'm thinking, you know, you go to worst case, it's a, it's an envelope who to imagine the possibilities. Yeah. I could only imagine and terror. A, dread. A, oh boy. But the relief. When it was just an overdue library book. Yeah. It was immense. Yeah, the trip could return. Yes. Then I could get back to yeah. losing my mind and the laughing academy over at the questioning the, reality. The Persian rug take me away. <laughs> so, you know, but that that like I don't know, that kind of stuff, it was it, it all throughout high school and and then uh I ended up uh I ended up, my drinking became, it's funny because when I was, when I was like 17 and me and my brother knows this now because, uh, you know, we've, I've had to make amends for this too, but I actually stole his identity. I pretended to be him. Okay. And I went to the D I, I remember I, I was, I snuck into his room when he was in the shower, like a snake, like I was on a co-op. Like, yeah. like a, a covert mission. And I went into his wallet and he had a social security card and I memorized it. What? Oh, this is craft. Oh, this oh, is yeah. pre digital. This was, so then I memorized this social security card and I went to Garrity's or one of those stores and I got a money order for, I think $11 and 50 cents. And I went up to the DMV and I said, I, I got, Which I, is on the state police barracks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I went in and I said, somebody stole my wallet at the gym. <laughs> and I gave them his social security number. And they printed me out a duplicate ID. A duplicate ID, yeah. And he turned 21 the day I went down to senior week. Man. So I, at 18, I had license to drink. And he was, this was unknown to anybody except for my friends. Yeah. So from 18, this is when like things started to really get progressive. So the picture was on him. the ID was him. They just duplicated just, his picture again. Cause we, we looked yeah. somewhat, we sure. had the same, pretty much the same height, same eye color, but. So at 18, you have the best document. It's not a fake ID. You have a real ID. It's real just ID. not you. Yep, just not me. Wow, that's a life. That's power. Oh yeah, for In me, Scranton. It, to me, it was. It <laughs> was. It was like I have arrived. You got the juice, man. So I would go down to the drive-through distributor. Yeah, and I showed them it a couple times, three, four, five times, and then I was there so much they stopped carding me. How's the kids, Joe? Yeah, what was your breath? What's going on? You know, <laughs> and and it, it was just it. it Whatever I was doing beyond before that, yeah. it just it crossed got, the line. Yeah, it got it got this, pretty crazy. This is a crafty deception that could seem juvenile at first, but it, that's 
That is a line being crossed. I always joke with my brother. I say, I still remember your social security card number in case I have to go on the lamb. So keep playing. <laughs> Fuck around and see what happens. Keep going. Fuck around and see what happens. <laughs> well, we have a house together now, so yeah. I know his social security number anyway. Because yes. We, you know, we so have to do all Today it's stuff. trust. It's yes, not leverage. It's not, <laughs> it's not leverage. But, but, you know, like he, it's, it's amazing because we always had dysfunction growing up in our relationships and I'm really close with all my brothers today. And it's, it's nice. Uh, and that was one thing that my parents were always about was like, we don't care what happens. We just want you guys to stay talking. Yeah. Get along. Well, I don't know if you have this in your family. We have stories. People stop talking for life, like Irish fights. And (laughs) yeah, we do too. We've, you know, we've had some, you know, brawls in my family, but we, we lost a sister and, and we will never, like I, we were all close. Yeah. We stay, we could have disagreements, but no one stops talking. That's no. it. You don't get more brothers or sisters. No, so, you don't. And like, and, and you know, like with all my trials and tribulations, like they put distance between me, mm-hmm. but they never stopped caring. They never stopped showing me love. They just weren't going to support what I was doing. And they made it abundantly clear. And but we still love you. We just don't like what you're doing. How much did that increase your chances to be where you're at today at recovery? I mean, it's hard to measure that stuff. You had love. It is. It, it's, you know, because I think I see a lot of it where people don't have that. Yeah. You know, or they don't have that that familial support. Um, I, think it, I think it definitely helps. I don't think it's the... It's the... And I'll be all no, it's not the predominant. I don't think it's going to be the thing that separates you from success or failure, but I think it definitely contributes to success. Yeah. Um, but I've also seen it contribute to failure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just complex. I guess. It, it, yeah. You know, cause I, I think that some, you know, some people can love you to death. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, we've talked about it in the past, me and you personally, um, it's, it happens where, you yeah. know, it, it, Smothered the puppy. Yeah. Or you, or you, you thought it was love, but it was really enabling. It's just, you know, Eastern life, that attachment is, it's not love. It's, it's, it's a selfish form of love. I'm, I'm attached to something. It's a, it's an illusion. Like uh, I'm smothering something because what it's providing for me, I'm calling it love. But. Well, it's funny because like I was reading, uh, me and my friend were, talking about this too is that you know in toxic family systems you know a toxic parent can view independence as abandonment yeah yeah you know and and what do you want you kind of want your child to become independent yeah you you don't last with your child that's kind of the line of the natural course of things the child replaces you you're going to create a defenseless child that only it's it's strange. It's, um, and you're seeing it more now, I think than yeah. ever with, you know, the younger demographic that's coming up with the ranks is that, you know, they, as much as they want to be independent, there's this form of dependency. Yeah. We've seen two forms of it. They don't have it or they've lost purpose and they're intelligent and, they can't commit to anything because the cynicism is washed over. Yeah. I don't think, I think millennials are one of the smartest generations and they're the largest voting demographic, but to not see them match that in voting turnout, 
uh, property ownership. There's all these very, why wouldn't you be cynical? Yeah. Like, well, you what? feel disenfranchised. Why would you do anything to. And voiceless. To, to, to get through it. It's, and the, <laughs> it's crazy. But I think that's the thing is like, you know, when you have, for me particularly, at least when I had such a desire to do what I wanted to do, there was nothing that was going to stop me from doing it. You know, and you put as an alcoholic, like I think sometimes you put all that ingenuity and all that, that uh, resiliency in just the wrong, the wrong area of expertise. And, and that's kind of what I did. I just put all my effort into insanity. Well, it's, it's insanity's good. You're cornering the market. No one else is good at it. Let me be at least the one in the my, best. yeah, my, in my tribe. This is where the, if someone needs crazy, come to me. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. But it's, it, it, you know, like that's when, when all this was going down and then I had, I had free reign to do what I wanted. Then I started to get more consequence and consequence and consequence. And, you know, eventually it's funny cause we talked about changing the narrative and I, I stuck with this narrative. Cause when I was like 17 or 18, I, uh, I got pretty, I got really intoxicated one night and I came home and it was late and I ended up putting on all my, my music cause you know, that's what you do at like one or two in the morning is you jam. And I was jamming. And obviously my family frowned upon that because they're sleeping. And no headphones. No. Like you're jamming. Oh, no, I'm jamming. Oh, shit. I'm jamming. Right. And, uh, and, you know, this whole melee ensued in my house where there's this physical altercation between me and multiple members of my family. And, um, and you're drunk. And I'm drunk. And then the police come. And I'm shackled and handcuffed in my underwear. Oh, man. And thrown into the back of the paddy wagon, taken to the CMC. Um, which is interesting because while I'm, while I'm being pushed down the seventh floor of the CMC, I see this girl that I went to high school with. And I'm like, oh, Trish, I haven't seen you in years. How you doing? Like, she's working. She's not a patient. She's, yeah. And... Fast forward when I got sober, I started talking to her and we started dating. I married her and she's the mother of my child. That's yeah, that's, that's Trish. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? But so I get home the next day in a, a hospital gown cause I have no clothes except my skivvies and my dad. And this is where the narrative changed for me when I got sober is, is my dad said, Joseph, you need to either get yourself some help or you need to leave. And I left now from that point at like 18 till I was like 25, 26, I would say my dad threw me out yeah, because it fit my narrative, right? Yeah, It yeah. fit the narrative because like, here I am, I'm this victim and you just don't understand. And I'm trying to, to make sense of this, this whole thing. And, um, it wasn't until after I got sober that I started to actually look at that situation. And I'm like, he didn't throw me out. He gave me a choice. And that total little delicate, small detail was, it was a big difference because it, it took away that whole victim mentality that yeah, it's I a had. different story. Yeah. It, it was totally different. It's and that a, was the truth. That was what actually happened. Not how long, how much time passed before you saw that one 
I don't even know when it when it happened where I was like, that's not what happened. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> how I it's powerful because I don't know how many are still left in my head. Yeah. You change the the dynamic of the story that gives me either the victim. I'm the victim. I was forced to do this stuff. Now I don't know how many of those I've rewrote in my head so I could just keep going on. And it's it's crazy because I think like, you know, that's the whole idea of I believe in the concept of recovery is to become more conscious. Yeah. And that was something that like where what it did for me was it started to make the cynicism subside a little bit. And, you know, and I was really, I was looking at this from a different perspective of like, okay, here's the truth. This is what actually happened. And I made a bad choice. Yeah. Right. And, as a result of making that bad choice, I had to, I had to create this false narrative, you know, where I was, you know, I was thrown to the street and that just wasn't the case. My father's cruelty made me party much longer. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, like, then you start thinking about it. Like, here's this guy that spent 27 years of his life in the state police and then has to endure watching and me and my dad have like a, a really close, I, I would like to consider it. I consider it a special relationship. I'm the baby. And he's watching me go through the throes of this stuff. Uh-huh. And my dad's been, my brother has had childhood cancer. You know, my brother, uh, we've all had our stuff. Like my dad and my mother have been through it. And then you got this kid who comes along and is just destroying his life and you have to sit back and watch it. And, and like, I don't know, there's, there's like a, you wonder what got them through those, those aspects of the addictive lifestyle and, and thank, cause, cause like they, I, they just celebrated um, August 14th is their wedding anniversary and I, I don't know how they must be married like 58 59 years I don't even know it's a long time and and it's just it's amazing to see like that their relationship has never really changed as a result of anything that's gone on with any of us that's that's something to understand well you would want to understand I would want to so I could have it well, I think that's the thing is like, they've always put each other first. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think they've always put each other first in their relationship where like, what's the, what can you do for anybody else? Like, especially the kids, if you're not, if you don't have this, yeah. but I remember during that time when my dad told me that, and this is something else I had to work through is I remember distinctly my mother and my mother doesn't always call my dad, Richard. He's known as Finner. And she said, Richard, don't. When he was like, you need to get help or get out, she said, Richard, don't. Richard. Yeah. And I was like, oh, mom means business. Yeah. That is something. But this was the twist, right? This was the rub. I wasn't even mad at my, I was, I expected that kind of from my father, you know, because he was kind of, you know, he was the the alpha dog. Law and order, man. Yeah. And I was I was kind of resentful towards my, I was really resentful towards my mom because I, that created this other narrative was like, she let him, 
She let him uh, do that. She's really in charge. Yeah. The queen. She's because yeah. my mom, it, it, she'll never say that, but yeah. she is. And and if my dad listens to this, he'll probably. The complexity of blame. Yeah. But, like, it, but yeah. that's, I was like really super resentful at my mom. Cause I was like, she, I can't believe she let him do that to me. And, uh, I had to, I had to kind of, that came out as a result of my, like the fourth step looking at some resentments. And I was like, this is, I'm so crazy. This is nuts. The things that I, I, I had to distort to fit my. And the fourth step is confronting the resentments, the fears, but having a longer discussion, like really looking at it. Like this is, you know, this is, this is the twisted perception of what I was in. The this real altered reality. The real fears that are distorting the reality. Yeah. And that's what I, you know, that that's where I, I started to really piece some of this stuff together is that like, I was just driven entirely by fear. Yeah. My whole entire life. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you that. Everybody says that about you. Joe Kane driven by fear. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my handle. <laughs> most scared kid ever. I just to pop back when you're talking about your parents, I could, it's just so admirable what I took for so grant, like granted for even seeing great parents and friends, family, cousins, um, to take care of yourself first, the, the relationship that means something to me. Now, everyone that's given me any good advice being a parent now, and you're, you're a parent. Take care of yourself when you're taking care of your kids. Yeah. Take care of your mind. Take care of your marriage and you're taking care of your kids. Yeah, because without what? it, what's it, you know, because what, what do you do? I mean, like, think about it this way. What's your first concept of, uh, of, of, I guess you could say in the context of recovery, like a higher power or God yeah. is your, your parents. And well, that is, that's, that's, that's it. A, the, the only way to describe God in a parental role. Unless you're going to get into a creator or that he's a laptop for someone. And and <laughs> it's funny. Created her. It's funny. Cause like you think about that with and this is where I think alcoholism is no, it's the, the equalizer is like, I had two of the, the best parents that you could possibly imagine yeah. who I've never seen them argue. I've never seen my parents argue or fight. I've never seen them raise their voice at each other. And that's something that I would definitely have remembered because I would have used it to my advantage. Do you think they did argue, but in private, they kept probably. it away from the, yeah, they probably had that's their, their strong discipline. I believe that, that, and, and I've had this conversation with my brothers is, is like, maybe they tempered that by the time I came along. Oh yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, through experience During and, and cruise control yeah, by that point, by yeah. that point. But I never, I never saw that. I never saw it in my, my childhood. Um, I'm sure that they did have disagreements or, or whatnot, but I, it wasn't like I was coming. I was, I was, you know, sitting outside the door waiting, waiting like, Oh, well, what kind of day am yeah, I going to have? What's the consensus in my, yeah. but then you think about that is like, did it, did it matter? Like, you know, cause I hear all these, I, I'm, I've had, thousands of people I've had the pleasure of hearing their stories and, and, and be part of their journey and, and hear intimate details and you get both sides of that spectrum, you know? And I think yeah. that's where, that's where I have a lot of respect for, for alcoholism is, is, you know, 
Did it matter? Does it matter? I don't know. Uh, the, I don't, I don't know. I've heard nightmare stories. I'm not saying I'm some kind of huge, broad meta analysis of all information. What are the, what are the likelihoods of success? And from the way you were raised, your scenarios, your conditions of what the probability of recovery is. I don't know. That could be bleak. That could be just maybe all over the map. Yeah. But I've met every type of person gets sober with love in the home, without love. Yep. And I've seen a lot of people die with love and support and without it. And it's to me, it's just this approach of a lottery lottery of, of now that I feel awake or conscious. I tell you this all the time. I don't want to lose it because yeah. I've seen people lose their lives that didn't have any of the many chances I had at getting better. Yeah. And that doesn't seem fair. And I don't want to take that for granted as a, as a person ever again that I, I gotta, I want to stay awake. Yeah. That's the trick is, is keeping it, you know, keeping that consciousness. Joe, I have you on here for an hour and we didn't even get started to the clinical half. <laughs> You're going to have to edit this. Well, we could edit it. Um, but do I get you for, for are, you, are you going to stay or should we? We can. It's been an hour already. Hour and five minutes, man. I well, let, Let's just rock I, yeah, it out. I, well, let's take a real quick pause. I okay. Think, um, we'll be back with Joe. Sounds good. Okay. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, an engineering company, 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.